Hi folks, this is Jacob Grace with Grassland 2.0. In the fall of 2021, Grassland 2.0 hosted a four-part digital dialogue series focusing on the question, what are healthy agroecosystems? The series explored benefits these systems have on people, farms, communities, and the land. We'll feature all four digital dialogues in upcoming episodes of GrassCast. First up is Broken Ground, the Changing Culture of America's Dairyland, a presentation by Dan Smith, President and CEO of the Cooperative Network. Dan will discuss the changes dairying has experienced over the last 50 years and explore the economic, social, and cultural impacts these changes have had through POEM. Here's Dan Smith, recorded in September of 2021. Welcome, everybody, to the uh, Grassland 2.0 uh, four-part digital dialogue series that we're just beginning. This is our first, the first of the four-part digital dialogue series for the fall. And uh, our, our theme for this uh, uh, digital series is, what are healthy agroecosystems? Uh, and so that will require us to explore uh, maybe what do we mean by agroecosystems? What do we mean by healthy and uh, where are we now with respect to healthy agroecosystems and where are we headed? And, of course, the Grassland 2.0 project is all about trying to find ways uh, to, to map out and plan transformative change in agriculture towards a system that more closely uh, resembles the, the functionality of the original prairie. That's the idea with Grassland 2.0. Not to say that we would restore native prairie all across the landscape necessarily, although I know Laura and I would love that. Uh, <laughs> we still have to find ways to feed ourselves and, and that sort of thing. And so uh, it really is about the functionality of the agriculture that we practice. And, and that's a part of our, our pursuit and our search. So we have a wonderful lineup this fall and uh, glad you could join us today. I'm going to turn it over to Laura Payne now, who's going to introduce our guest today. Thank you, Randy. So I'm, I'm Laura Payne. I'm the outreach coordinator for the Grassland 2.0 project. And I've had the honor of knowing our speaker for over 10 years now. Um, Dan and I worked together at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture. Um, Dan has always um, amazed me with his, um, the breadth and the depth of his, his thinking and knowledge. Um, uh, having spent 30 years as a dairy farmer in northwestern Illinois before he came to Wisconsin. Um, he worked a lot with our, the DATCAP Farm Center with uh, farmers dealing with financial struggles and issues and spent some time uh, as administrator of the Division of Ag Agricultural Development at the Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection. He's also uh, spent some time with uh, Midwest BioAg and is currently the president and CEO of Cooperative Network. Um, his new talent, which I wasn't aware of, is um, maybe it's not new. Um, uh, Dan just published a volume of poetry, um, and he'll be weaving in some of his, his thoughts and perspectives on dairy farming um, and those that poetry collection in his presentation today. So I'll turn it over to Dan to share um, his presentation titled Broken Ground, Changing Culture of America's Dairyland. Go ahead, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, everyone, for having me 
it's always a pleasure to work with groups that are so dedicated to finding a, a better way forward for Wisconsin agriculture and, and Wisconsin farmers. So it's it's my privilege to be here today. And I'd like to say that, you know, where I'm speaking from today is really from a lifetime experience in agriculture. And as Laura pointed out in her introduction, um, from several different viewpoints. And each one of those viewpoints really helped shape my understanding and and um, perception of what agriculture is, its impact on our environment and our people, and what it could be. Um, so really, the basis of my thoughts, of course, were grounded growing up on a dairy farm, going home and running that farm for 30 years. Uh, probably the most pivotal moment of um, of my 30 years as a farmer was 20 years in transitioning a confinement-based large dairy to rotational grazing. Uh, a great challenge. We could probably do a whole series of webinars on just that transition process, but it really put me back in touch with why I wanted to become a farmer in the first place, and it really showed me a lot about the benefits of the work that Randy and his colleagues do in, in grass-based agriculture and those types of things. And then when I moved on to DATCAP after leaving farming and became a farm financial consultant, it really gave me the opportunity to work with farmers all across the state, sit at their kitchen table, delve into their financials, but also to hear their life stories, to see what are the challenges and opportunities that all of our farmers are working through constantly in this very important and essential industry. Uh, when I moved on to be the administrative agricultural development, it really showed me the size and the and the depth of Wisconsin agriculture. We used to say everything from cranberries to zucchinis, you know, all the things that we produce, domestic markets, international markets, um, different programs working with local and regional food, um, financial assistance, mental health assistance, all those programs that Department of Agriculture runs to really help support um, Wisconsin's farmers. Um, when I was spent three years as president and CEO of Midwestern Bioag, for the first time in my farming career, I was on the other side of the table, the, ta the side of the table that can set their price, that has a whole team, a whole industry of, pe uh, of people working towards one goal. And that was very revealing to see agriculture from the supply side, from the retailer side, um, not from the producer and the purchaser of those input side. And to see how really unbalanced those two things are, which I think have caused a lot of issues over the years for a lot of our farmers. And today as president and CEO of Cooperative Network, uh, association that supports 200 cooperatives in Wisconsin and Minnesota from a dozen different business sectors. So everything from housing to food co-ops to credit unions, um, agricultural cooperatives, farm supply, um, all these cooperatives that are so grounded in agriculture and in our rural communities, you know, just that network of people that make up rural Wisconsin and our rural economy. Um, those are the vantage points that I'm speaking of today and the vantage points that I use to write Ancestral, um, a, a collection, as Laura said, that really spans 40 years for my entire career in agriculture, that really tries to look at some of these trends and challenges and concerns that we'll be talking about today. 
And it's a good thing to talk about because in Wisconsin, agriculture is always in the news. You can pick up the paper any day of the week and you can see headlines such as this about our growing milk surplus, our low prices, rising cost, or scrutiny over our, how large some of our farms are getting and what's the potential impact of that. But what's really interesting about these headlines is that I took those from the Monroe Evening Times newspaper, actual headlines published in 1978. That was 43 years ago. We're still having the same discussions today. Each one of those headlines could appear on the paper of the Wisconsin State Journal tomorrow. So the same issues really are facing us today. So when Ancestral was published and it got out into the general public and got some press behind it, I got um, a request from the largest newspaper in Australia, uh, the Times newspaper, uh, who had become aware of Ancestral and my writing about the Wisconsin dairy industry. And they they said, in 400 words or less, can you write us an op-ed piece that explains to Australians what's ha- what's going on in Wisconsin? And I, I did. I took a, a shot at it, and I thought maybe that would be a good way to start our conversation today, um, is just to read you this brief essay um, that I tried to sum up this very complex time in Wisconsin agriculture. And it goes like this. Nearly every day, somewhere in America's dairy land, Another dairy farmer calls it quits. The milk pump goes silent. The cows are loaded onto trucks and trailers. The barn lights are turned out. This exodus from the dairy industry has been going on for decades. In 1978, the year I started dairying on my family's farm, Wisconsin had 47,700 licensed dairy farms. Today, there are about 6,775 still standing. Yet Wisconsin's cow population and milk production continues to set records. There is no shortage of affordable dairy products in the grocery store. It appears Wisconsin has done a great job of keeping the cows, but not so much the farmer. As a result, the rural communities of Wisconsin face challenges shared across Wisconsin's farm belt. Fewer farm families have resulted in shuttered schools and stores, depreciated infrastructure, and absentee agriculture. Commodity agriculture dominates the dairy and grain sectors as we bet the farm that someone somewhere in the world will buy all the American farmer can produce. There is little talk of production controls, diversified agricultural systems, or the social, economic, environmental, and cultural impacts of what farming has wrought. Decades ago, the American farmer was told to get big or get out, and that remains the rule. I grew up on and later operated for 30 years a Midwestern family dairy typical of the time and region. My family provided the management, labor, resources, and sweat equity the farm required. The farm was both home and business. The family tended the cows and land from sunup to sundown. In turn, we were fed, educated, housed, and in all ways made whole. Then in 2007, after generations of dairying, I sold my cows. The treadmill of modern agriculture had worn me out. The barn where I had learned dairying from my father 
where I had spent countless hours as a child and later as a dairyman, went dark and silent. Sadly, my experience is not unique. I share with it all the dairy with I share it with all the dairy farmers who have exited the industry over the years. Academic papers and public policy forums have tried to decipher America's changing farm landscape. I chose a different approach. I wrote a book of poems, Ancestral, about the farm, farming, aging, and the changes one endures in a life dedicated to such an essential profession. There is a reason the word culture lies within the word agriculture. So over that time that my op-ed piece tried to summarize in very brief form, our common solution has always been expand production, pursue economies of scale, utilize credit to invest back into the farm and to grow the farm, and to maximize efficiencies. We have constantly told farmers how important it is to maximize efficiencies. And along that time, the farmer has, you know, kind of tried to keep up with the rising cost of living, rising uh, operation and investment cost in farming. All these challenges of staying in touch and ahead of a constantly changing agriculture, which is part of a constantly changing world. After all, farmers do not live on an island. Um, many of the farmers I worked with as a crisis and financial counselor at the Farm Center were in trouble because they failed to do these things. Uh, they, they failed to expand, to grow their operation to the point where it could um, support the family and return what they needed for uh, for their lifestyle. And over this course of time, we really dealt with this low margins, high risk. Um, I recently asked an agricultural banker why he thought that there was so that there is there wasn't more outside investment in agriculture from like the private equity world or, or those types of things. And he said because it's the reward the margins are too low and the risk is too high. And I thought that really summarized a lot of what the challenge in agriculture is. We work with very small margins and we work with a very high risk. And that risk comes in the forms of a constantly changing market, um, constantly changing weather, and now the impacts of climate change where we see these rain events in Wisconsin uh, occurring on an annual basis that we used to think occurred once a century, 11, 12-inch rainfalls in a, in a single watershed, um, dealing with all of that impact. And then, of course, as we've had to grow agriculture, to maintain its presence in the overall economy and society, just the competition for land and resources, uh, the need to constantly change and adapt. Um, all the time that the family is changing, aging, um, mental and physical health is deteriorating as we try to keep up with what I mentioned in my op-ed piece as uh, the treadmill of uh, modern agriculture. And it's amazing that through all of this, we work, we have so many farm families that will work so hard to stay in the game, to stay there. And how many generations removed from the farm 
people who haven't grown up on a farm or worked on a farm or anything still feel that pull back to ancestral land. Uh, they can remember being with their parents or their grandparents or their great grandparents on a farm. And it really holds that cultural um, lock to us. And that is something that I really wanted to uh, explore in my book. But over the time of this constant change in agriculture, it's kind of ironic that a industry that values so much on heritage and tradition and the family unit and the family tie to ancestral land, while it's doing that, has to deal with so much change because agriculture is constantly changing. And what's driving that change? Well, obviously, the advancements in technology, genetics, and nutrition. We can do things today in agriculture that when I started farming in 1978 would have been a pipe dream. Uh, just that, just the management, the technology, and precision agriculture, and the equipment, you could go on and on. But you get the idea. It's changed drastically in the course of one person's career. If you just take Take myself from when I started to where I am today, how much farming has changed in an industry that values heritage so much. We have those new methods of farm production and management. Um, over the last several decades, we've had really good interest rates um, for farming. We've had available credit to grow and expand and purchase land and bring another generation onto the farm and all those types of things that constantly drive change. And obviously, a result of that, we've had specialization and consolidation, some vertical integration in some parts of agriculture. Um, there are career and lifestyle alternatives out there that pull people out of agriculture into other worlds, um, which allows all these other things that we've talked about to take up the slack and continue to provide uh, consumers with reasonably priced food. And then, of course, we've seen new markets emerge, um, could be the organic market in the United States. It could be new um, food and products in the domestic market. But it also really entered into the international marketplace in the course of my agricultural career um, that really changed agriculture a great deal. So with all that change, what have we really gained? And I we'll have to admit we probably gained a lot. Uh, we have the world's most plentiful food supply. We spend the lowest percentage of our income on food. That food supply is consistent, safe, and reliable, really the envy of the world, how safe it is for to walk into any grocery store or restaurant. And agencies like DATCAP deserve a lot of credit for this to establish the permitting and the regulations that make sure that we do have that safe, reliable food supply. Um, our freed up much of our society to pursue other interests. We don't have a lot of people all hunting and gathering and trying to find their next meal. Um, there are other opportunities because we have such a small percentage left at the farm that feeds everyone else. And then, of course, we've really taken on a major role in feeding the world. But just like with everything in life, when you gain something, you lose something. And we have to be honest, if we're going to have an honest conversation about this, what have we lost? Well, you can drive across the rural Midwest and you can see it from the car window. We lost a significant part of our vibrant rural population in small towns. 
we've lost that engagement of our rural, in our rural communities of main street businesses and strong local school districts and all those things that really make a community. Uh, we've lost the support system of many, many rural businesses that supplied all those 47,700 dairy farmers that we had in 1978. And now we're heading towards 6,000 dairy farmers. So we've lost a lot of that support system across the general countryside. I think we've strayed further from our farm heritage and our land ethic. Um, that's an inevitable result, I think, of absentee agriculture, of a lot of our land being rented, a lot of the, the house where the house and the barn is separated off into a farmette and then the land just becomes a field and it's rented out and you can show up in the spring and fall and we're basically in a commodity absentee agriculture. The farm heritage and the land ethic was simply not able to stand up to that. And that's why I say that we've lost a lot of the art of husbandry because I still think a farm needs a farmer. And that seems like an obvious statement, but it isn't really because a lot of our farms today don't really have a farmer that's dedicated to that farm piece of land 365 days a year. That sets their home that they have total responsibility and an allegiance to. You can't uphold that relationship in a landlord tenant absentee agriculture commodity driven agriculture in my, in my opinion. So what's that has left us with is really looking at, you know, the core of the family farm. How does that survive? How does the culture? Because we spend so much time talking about farming's a business, and it is. Bills have to be paid. Money has to be borrowed. Investments have to be made. There has to be some type of growth just to keep up with the general economy. Um, but at the same time, we want the family farm to be kind of like what we remembered it to be. Um, obviously, a home and a business. It has to be an essential part of the community. Um, we want the farmer to be a good caretaker of the land and water, a farmer on the farm, each farm with his own farmer. Uh, we definitely want that farm to be passed generation to generation. And then we want the farm, I think, a lot of us, to be a sense of place, a homeland in a ever-changing world. So that when we drive through the countryside and we see the red barn and the silo and the house and the lawns mowed and the fences are, are kept up, we feel good about our food system and our rural economy. I recently had a conversation with a farmer who, who brought up to me that in his entire farming career, and been farming for a long time, um, that he'd only ever been asked two questions from people in his community about his farm. How many acres do you farm and how many cows do you have? He said he's really getting frustrated with that question. But isn't that really the question that uh, the main concern we've always had, all of us in agriculture? How many acres and how many cows? So I asked him, what are, what would you prefer somebody had asked you? If you could have your druthers, what would those questions be? And he said, I would want to be asked, what have I done to take care of the land and the water on my farm? What have I done to ensure that the farm stays in the family generation to generation? What are, what is my succession plan? 
And the last question he said, I would like to know, be asked, what has your farm returned to the greater community? And I thought, wouldn't that be wonderful if those were the three questions that we had had? Um, so when I wrote Ancestral, which is a, uh, uh, you know, poems written over 40 years, these are the types of, of, um, themes that I tried to explore and obviously in a very different realm. I mean, a lot of us in this society don't spend a lot of time reading poetry. And I'm going to venture this may be one of the only webinar this, that you listen to this year that somebody's going to break out a book of poetry. But before you run away, uh, give me, give me a shot at this. So when you think about everything that we've been talking about, so, um, this is kind of how I try to capture this. One of the things that I noticed when I was working with farmers and DATCAP and I could relate back to my own experience on the farm was how safe the farm becomes for farmers and their families in an ever-changing world. Uh, just how that they could really um, value that. And sometimes it seems like the whole world is going by but if you can just hold on to what you have always known and what your ancestors knew, um, it makes it all worthwhile. So I'm going to read you a poem that I wrote that refers back to when I was on the farm and any idea of that someday I would not be farming or my family farming or us being on the land would, would have seemed preposterous. Um, but that is what this poem and without going belaboring the point more. I'll just read you the poem and hopefully you'll get the idea of my message. It's called Cultivating. Day after day, year in and year out, I never left my father's farm. Wore down dirt, a straight path from house to barn. Opened each day with pocket knife and pliers the ways my father taught me. Out on the blacktop, Men raced breakneck speed to jobs in town, to worlds apart from what could be measured, from what could be held close. While I steered the old red tractor, carefully cultivating my narrow rows, two hands on the wheel, eyes tucked back beneath my wide-brimmed hat, so not to rise up, look ahead, and veer off course into today. It's an image of trying to hold on to what is so important in our heritage that you don't want to look up, take the long view, and veer off course into what may be uh, an unfamiliar or uncertain future. One of the poems in the book um, that has brought the most comments from other farmers who I've shared the book with. Um, I'm going to share this poem with you now, and it really captures, I think, what a lot of our farmers are feeling right now. So I serve on the DATCAP um, Board of Directors, and we just had a, uh, a somebody say at one of our meetings that, um, and somebody in the dairy processing industry, that he assumed that, right, he believed that we will lose one third of the dairy farms in the state in the next five years. And I think he has a good point because I think he knows what he's talking about. 
I mean, he's working with those farmers. So just add up the evidence. Take their age. Most of them are in their 60s. A lot of them do not have kids returning to the farm. Most of them are on farms that need a tremendous amount of reinvestment in the infrastructure of the farm. Um, and they're kind of worn out. And they've been trying to keep up with that treadmill of agriculture that I mentioned for a long, long time. So I can remember when I was in their shoes. So I was in my late 50s when I decided to sell my cows. Um, and this poem that I wrote is really about coming to that decision. And it positions the farmer, and I think we have lots of farm families in the state that are in this situation now, where you're caught between the generation that went before, your responsibility to the generation that went before for continuing the farm or owning the farm, improving the farm, and the generation, the next generation, that has found other ways to live, and that probably is not returning to the farm or the rural community unless major changes are made um, and it affords a different type of life than maybe you had. So you're kind of the sandwich generation. You're between what came before and what is to come um, after. And I think the reason farmers keep bringing this poem up to me is because there's so many of them that can identify with it. And lots of them will come up to me and, and just mention the page number. They'll just say, that, that poem on page 87, that's how I feel. So I thought it would be important if we're going to talk about the culture of agriculture to get an idea of what that culture is really going through right now. And I think for some reason this poem that I wrote when I was in their shoes um, really captures that. And the poem is called Chasing Chores. Sun on the south porch, the dog dozing beneath, late September. The dry weeds rustle as the old mare limps from hot sun to box elder shade. The year's hay now in the barn, the garden gone to seed, and no one home to notice. Years back, Three families farmed 700 acres, milked dawn and dusk seven days a week. My boys pulled on big boy boots, chased chores sun up to sundown. Now some lives laid to rest, others starting up in faraway cities. While here on land that still stays home, I've stayed to chase these chores alone. Each year, grinding down, spring to fall, a bit harder than the last. Those last stanzas where you realize that the previous generation has been laid to rest, and the next generation is starting up their lives in faraway cities, really shows the isolation that a lot of our farmers feel on the land, land that still stays home where they've chosen to stay but each year grinding down a bit harder than the last is inevitable as we age and we try to keep up. I recently gave a reading in Spring Green, and afterwards a farm couple came up. They were a fourth-generation farm, southwestern Wisconsin. They were 
obviously in their 60s, early 70s. And they told me that they had sold their milk cows a few years ago. And then they bought beef cows. And now they were up to 150 beef cows. And they said nothing changed except we don't have to milk them twice a day. But we don't know what to do because we we couldn't milk the cows anymore. But we couldn't let go of the farm. We couldn't let go of the land. We had all these pastures. So we brought on the beef cows. Now we're just five years older and we're back in the same situation out of the fact that we don't have to milk them every day. But the work is still overwhelming. And I wondered how many farmers might have that same feeling of kind of being caught in a time warp between two worlds and not really knowing where to go. Um, that being caught between the two generations, I think, is very, very um relevant today in agriculture. I had the choice of many quotes to use as an epigraph for the um, book, but I had always held on to this one from Teresa Weir's great book called The Orchard, which I would recommend to anyone. Um, but this poem, this little epigraph that I used, uh, quoting from her from her book, really showed me, I thought, how a lot of people felt in agriculture and still do. There was immeasurable comfort in knowing this would be the rest of your life. And there was immeasurable sorrow in knowing this would be the rest of your life. And knowing that when you were gone, the plow would still cut deep into the ground you once planted. Fields that had been everything to you would still exist after you were gone. Maybe not in the same way. Maybe not with the same poetry but they would exist. When you think of the average age of the Wisconsin farmer today in the 60s, I'm willing to bet that that excerpt, that epigraph, would really resound with a lot of them, especially that immeasurable comfort versus immeasurable sorrow. Um, that, that really captures, I think, the culture of what keeps people in agriculture um, and working so hard to stay there in an industry that can very often be very, very unforgiven. Um, I really wanted to use that quote to really explore, explore, you know, those that that kind of both sides of the coin of agriculture. I do feel that there are opportunities and challenges ahead. And isn't that the way it always is? Every opportunity brings a challenge and every challenge an opportunity. In a perfect world, I think we would be able to, I should have said recreate, not create, but recreate and live up to a new land ethic that can utilize all that new technology and all that change that I talked about, but still protect our very precious natural resources and I don't know if we're living up to that challenge right now. Uh, can we pivot agriculture to a new age? We have drone agriculture and, um, you know, self-driven tractors and still maintain that heritage that agriculture is. The Wall Street Journal had an article last year about a farmer in Iowa who said that he um, – watched the entire first two series of House of Cards while he planted his corn because he had the technology in his tractor and the tractor drove itself. 
And I actually found that um, very sad. Um, that you would be a farmer, you would be on your farm, you would be doing one of the greatest things that farmers do, plant, and you're watching TV. I don't understand why you would even take the risk or accept the low margins when, if that is what you're going to do. And I, that takes me back to every farm needs a farm. Every farm needs boots on the ground. Um, West Jackson calls it, and West Jackson and Wendell Berry both use the, the phrase, you know, eyes to acre ratio. How many eyes can we put on an acre of ground taking care of that acre of ground? And the further that eyes to acres ratio spreads out, the less care, less attachment you get. Eyes to acre ratio is totally violated by the concept that you could watch the entire season of a television show while you're planting your corn. So we have to, if we're going to use all this new technology in agriculture, can we keep agriculture connected to the land and the people who are farming it? And then can agriculture stay part of our rural communities? Can we pop repopulate the rural communities? I think with virtual remote work, we have some opportunities um, moving forward. We have a long ways to go to reboot our rural communities, um, to refill our rural schools, to repopulate with engaged families who call that area home. And then can we really make farming part of our economic, social, and cultural points of energy? I know a lot of work is done on keeping farming linked to our economic engines uh, to keep it part of our society. I guess my work with Ancestral has really been to try to keep it part of the of the cultural form as well. I think in the end, if we can keep farming part of our as the foundation of of not only our food supply. It isn't just supplying the grocery store, but it's reinvigorating our rural communities and paying homage to that heritage that brought us to this point. Um, we would have um, a better future than, than, than we might have if we continue down the current path. Um, for the book jacket for Ancestral, uh, my publisher wrote this and just talking about you know, the ability to write in a language that's direct and accessible, a commitment to an ancestral place and way of life, um, and what emotional turbulence occurs when you leave that. And I think about, you know, that going back to that um, producer saying that a third of the dairy farmers will quit within the next five years. A lot of farmers are going to go through this. A lot of farmers are going to have to have this internal conversation with themselves. They're going to have to have a conversation with their family. And they're going to have to come to some type of a reckoning with the changing landscape of rural America and the physical, emotional, and cultural components of a family farm. And I think as difficult as farming is, as difficult as the finances are, the physical work is, the emotional and cultural components of a family farm are the most difficult. And I know that from all those calls I made from the farm center. That was, you could look at the balance sheet 
You could look at the cash flow. You could look at the income statement. Those were hard numbers on the piece of paper that you could look at. But it was much more difficult when you had to talk to people about their actual lives and how they felt and where they wanted to go in it. And that's a difficult conversation. And sometimes we run away from those conversations. So I'm going to conclude with one more poem and kind of case study um, that's in the book. And this is, there are four or five poems in the book that draw directly from those um, case studies that I had when I was working as a counselor for DATCAP in the Wisconsin Farm Center. So you would go out on these farms and it wasn't a one-time visit. You had to build trust. You had to open up lines of communication. Many times those that do that work today will, will know this very well. Frank Fryer and all the, all the people at Wisconsin Farm Center, you're called to the farm and it, what the actual issues on the farm might not surface to the third or fourth meeting. And it takes conversation and it takes earning trust. And there's four or five poems in this book where I write in those voices of, um, shared that I pull different cases together through. Uh, the poem I'm going to leave you with and then I want to get to the discussion so that I'm not just rambling on here. Um, I was called out to a farm um, owned by a bachelor farmer. Um, he told me that he wanted to talk about his estate plan. Um, so I went out and met him for the first time, and it soon became obvious that there really wasn't any problem with the estate plan. I mean, he was, he, he was very well off and um, an old bachelor, but what he really wanted was to talk to somebody. And that's another great part of the farm center. Um, sometimes you just listen. You don't have to have an answer for everything. You don't have to fix everything. Sometimes people just want to talk. And that was the service that I provided today uh, for, for this farmer on that day. And I took some of his words and I brought in some of my own. And then I brought in some other farmers that I work with to create a poem called In the Fall of My Life, Words of a Bachelor Farmer. And it's it's a long poem. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read you some excerpts from it um, to kind of give you the idea of what he said. But more importantly, I think his words really, in his story, really supports what I've tried to share with you today. That, um, and if I can summarize that, it would be, Yes, it's a business. Yes, it's constantly changing. Um, yes, we have a wonderful food system. But well, we've paid for all of that at a cost. And that cost has not been totaled up yet. There are a lot of people who have big decisions to make about their future as they age and agriculture and the direction it goes and the type of rural culture and agricultural ethic that we're going to develop in this country. So I'll just read you a couple stanzas from this rather lengthy poem. In the fall of my life, words of a bachelor farmer. My grandparents gifted me this farm. I call it a gift. My mother called it a curse. I loved my grandparents. Like I said, they gave me this farm. Grandpa taught me how to do everything. I remember eating breakfast with them at 6.30 every morning right here at this table. 
I remember what they sounded like, and I remember what they smelled like, and I am only here because of how hard they worked all their lives. People say I never married, but they are wrong. I married the farm. Then he goes on to talk about his experience on the farm and the different things, uh, good things and bad that happened over the years as he aged and and how difficult it was, kind of like back to that Chasing Chores poem where every year was a little harder than the last. And then he gave me this great summary, and this is almost verbatim, so I'm not even going to call this my poem. This is basically his poem because this is basically what he told me. And I thought this stanza sums up better than about any white paper or government study or policy institute could ever come up with about farming. And I'll conclude my remarks today with this. Give me a day with the sun shining and the wind blowing and me up on the farm all pulling the hay baler. The bales tight and of good quality flying up into the wagon. Good tight bales of decent quality. You can't beat that. You really can't. Thank you and I'll be happy to take any questions and we can continue on with our discussion. Randy? Thank you so much, Dan. Uh, fantastic. Uh, I'm really struggling with the tension here on ancestral and heritage and looking back and the ability to move forward and transform. And so maybe we can explore some of that here. But I do want to make sure we have an opportunity for folks to ask questions. There were a few in the chat, and I'm going to take them in the order they came. And I think Anne can allow you to ask your own question. So I was going to go to Jeffrey Volts first, who put a question in the chat box. And are you able to let Jeffrey ask his question? Jeffrey, would you mind? Uh, it is a digital dialogue, so I'm trying to encourage dialogue here and uh, not just read the questions. Except you're muted, Jeff. There you go. Jeffrey, are you there? We're not hearing Jeffrey, so I will just read his question. He says his mic isn't working. So let me ask, let me ask his question here. Uh, Jeffrey says, uh, thanks, Dan. Where in your mind does the local community come into play when it comes to supporting the role of agriculture? within their community. I'm speaking specifically of school boards and county townships and village boards and financial institutions. Excellent. Thank you, Jeffrey, for the question. You know, my work at Cooperative Network really has shown me the value and the importance of a connected community from many, many different industries and people coming together that, that form that community. So when you look at our cooperatives, whether it's a, a credit union or a housing cooperative or a energy cooperative like your local electric cooperative or telecom cooperative, um, maybe your um, healthcare cooperative. Um, all of those really rely on a vibrant, engaged rural community that calls that community home, um, that protects the natural and social and cultural resources of that community. And then, 
gives back. You'll remember the three questions that the farmer really wanted people to ask him. One of them, what is your farm given back to the community? So what we are facing with now as we've lost so much population, um, and the population that has remained is often aging um, in our rural communities, is just kind of a draining away of the vibrant energy that it takes to keep a community going, to fill the schools, to serve on, as, as you pointed out, Jeffrey, the local school board, the community, um, the town board, the co-op board. A lot of our cooperatives are finding it difficult to even find people to run for directorships on boards, not because the work isn't there to be done or rewarding is simply not as many people and the people have very busy lives and they may be commuting a distance to work or those types of things. So finding that level of social and economic and cultural engagement is very, very um, important if we're going to rebuild our rural communities. So you could come at this with two different approaches, I feel, and I'll try not to venture into politics on all this. But there is one school of thought that says, okay, let's go find an employer. Let's entice him, this employer, to build a facility in an area. And then the jobs will be there and everyone will go around those, move there to get a job. That's one way to, to do it. Another way, and the way that we've really been talking about lately in the groups that I work with, is uh, just switch that around. Let's build, let's do everything we can to build um, good housing, good health care, child care, elder care, um, infrastructure, um, cultural events, natural resources, um, bike trails, those types of things, so that when a person is looking at a place to move his or her family um, to live where they want to put down roots for the next 20 years, they're drawn into that area. And then when the um, employers see, I need a workforce, I need an engaged workforce that's committed to an idea, a place, a way of life, I notice this one here. I'm going to open a business there. I'm going to open a facility there because the people are already there. I prefer that approach um, because I think it's more holistic and I think it gives us a better chance of moving across the state of Wisconsin and our sister states around the Midwest to rebuild some of these communities. I think um, we have some big challenges to do that. Um, I've mentioned, I've talked a lot in this discussion about what I call absentee agriculture, which is where you can simply come in and put in a commodity crop, usually corn or soybeans in the spring and harvest out in the fall. But there is no real tie to that community. Um, and you can go a great distance with the type of equipment and you can, you can plant a lot of ground. I was talking to a person who serves on one of the big cooperative boards. And he mentioned just in our conversation that he had spent 60 days in hotel rooms the previous year, year on cooperative business. And I know this gentleman farms 5,000 acres. So I said, well, how do you do that? How, how can you be gone from the farm 60 nights in a year and farm 5,000 acres? And he said, oh, there's really not that much to it. 
we hit it hard in the spring and hit it hard in the fall, but other than that, it's all just corn and beans. And I thought, well, that, that, that's true. Um, that we have, we have developed the system to do that. Um, but let's look at what the cost of that is, because the cost is that for the rest of the year, no one's home. That farm doesn't have a farmer. It has a crop growing in a field. It doesn't have a farm family. It doesn't have a farm family connected to the rural community. And that's where I think you start to see the hollowing out of the rural communities and things emptying out and our schools being closed um, and those types of things. So staying on that theme a little bit of hollowing out of rural communities, I want to kick it over to Claudio Graton, who's asked to – I want to get to your second question here, Claudio, if I can which is uh, uh, about the concept of what makes a vibrant rural community and how can we pass it down through the generations and diversify ourselves, diversify our communities in the, in the meantime. I think that's part of the tension of this ancestral heritage and looking forward. We have to look forward in ways that allow us to be just and, and equitable and diverse and inclusive. But if everything's tied up in our heritage, that uh, can be quite difficult. So maybe I stated Claudio's question, but I'll let him chime in if I miss something there. Oh, Randy, you said it really well. I think that's just an excellent question and a really great um, capture of the essential problem. How do you, and this is kind of what I tried to capture in Ancestral, how do you stay connected to what was? in a constantly changing world and then broaden that world out to be more inclusive, to bring in um, new populations, new people, new thought patterns, new ways of life, along with the new opportunities, the new technology, the new ways of doing things. It is, it is going to be a tremendous challenge. I think there are opportunities in agriculture and related fields that would draw um, non-traditional people into agriculture. And I'm lucky enough to meet many of them uh, working in um, what previously would have been considered fringe markets in agriculture, but are becoming more mainstream all the time, that are pulling people back to the land. I think we have some examples here in Wisconsin of very successful communities who have engaged um, not only economic opportunity through agriculture, but um, natural resources in the area that have been a draw to people. I'm thinking, you know, primarily probably the best example in Wisconsin is Organic Valley, um, where they've really built a, a culture, um, a vision for what agriculture could be that's connected to the personnel, the human and natural resources and respect for that in the area. Can we duplicate that on all different levels? Um, if we can, we have to start pretty soon because I'm not seeing a lot of it. Uh, I'm not, I'm not seeing that in across all the sectors that we work in that that inclusiveness that openness to new ways of doing things at the same time that you remain um, connected to a place um, is is being is the prominent message that I'm hearing right now. 
if we can't turn that around, I think we will have economic social deserts um, where you travel a great, those who do live there have to travel a great distance to connect, to shop, to experience anything, and they become very isolated. That's what we really have to work against. Um, I think the organic valley model gives me hope that that could be replicated over time. Um, but you know, there is a serious fallout impact on every level. If you are going to go from almost 50,000 small family dairy farms to less than 5,000 in the course of one generation. You think of the impact of that, the ripple impact that that has, as I talked about in my PowerPoints before we got to the poems, of of pulling a population from the rural communities and not returning anything to it uh, other than commodity agriculture. And commodity agriculture, I use that term a lot, I find commodity agriculture very close to being an extraction industry. So we think of an extraction industry such as the coal industry in Appalachia, where the natural resources of the area are extracted, sent someplace else. And then there's a trickle back of the economic revenue back into that area, but the majority of it does not return. And I think if we have an absentee commodity-based agriculture, like we already have in Iowa and Illinois, parts of Indiana, of um, commodity-based corn and soybean agriculture, basically, where the crop is um, extricated from the ground, sent off, and there isn't that local connection back of uh, returning to the soil, returning to the local community, all types of energy, human energy, natural resources, cultural economic return um, to rebuild and replenish those communities, um, we can already see what we're going to be dealt with. You can see it in Appalachia. You can see it in when you drive across Iowa, uh, a lack of diversity in everything from the plant life to the type of farming to the actual population in those areas. It's going to be a real challenge, and it's going to require some hard decisions and it's going to take some investment into helping these new ways of doing things evolve. So I want to try and follow on to that a little bit still with um, uh, Buzz Sorgi, Sorge, Sorgis. Sorry if I'm butchering your name there, Buzz. I want to uh, let him ask his question, he or her, ask their question. Um, but uh, this point about, the, the example you gave of Organic Valley, for instance, of the a private sector sort of seeding of that vitality, if you will, uh, is an interesting point. And I think I'm reading into Buzz's question here a little bit about, well, what's the role of the public sector maybe? But I'll let Buzz ask his question without leaving too much. Uh, can you hear me, Randy? Am I coming yeah, through? Yeah. Yeah, Great. Well, I'm, I'm currently working with a group over in the Red Cedar Basin where this your seminar is spot on, and we're trying to initiate this conversation at the community level and with starting a workshop next spring. And we're struggling a bit of how to bring the community together to have this discussion. And so my it's really a two-part question. One, I guess the second part maybe is the first part, what sectors of the community 
need to participate and really engage in this rebooting process culturally, socially, and economically? And then what are these key components we need to include to really gather these people in, to really set the hook, to start an ongoing discussion and process that we know is going to take time and years, but uh, we need some help to get this going. I think there are opportunities emerging for public-private partnerships. So private industry getting together with government, uh, giving I, energy policy development, economic assistance um, to address these issues in areas and to kind of build a foundation where you can address these issues and move forward. So I'll give you some examples. So in the governor's budget, Governor Evers' recent budget, um, he allocated $200,000 per year for the next two years for co-op feasibility studies. So obviously, I work for Cooperative Network, so my heart is in with cooperatives. But if you look back over the time, centuries, uh, cooperatives have always arisen in a time of in response to a specific need. Um, They first were formed after the Industrial Revolution, when machines came in and really uh, took the place of the workers in a lot of the textile mills in England and those types of places. So they identify a changing world, and then what are the opportunities and challenges that those change are bringing to the general public? And then institute under a cooperative umbrella, democratic control, seven principles of cooperatives, all those types of things, how you respond to that. So one of the things that we're really interested in, um, and I think Governor Evers' feasibility studies have are, will help do, is can we look at areas in these communities that are in need but have not had the assistance or the light shined on them long enough for them to really develop into um, solutions. And some of the areas that we're looking at are um, cooperative, um, cooperative transportation systems, kind of based on the Lyft or Uber model, only a community-owned cooperative that provides that. Um, cooperative child care, cooperative um, elder care, uh, cooperative home assistance, um, built um, in conjunction with our cooperative health care centers. So any place in this area, in these communities where there is an obvious need of a resource that is lacking, that is really pulling the community down. And I think you can really identify, you know, right off the top of your head, three or four of those. Um, housing's one of them. Child care is one of them. Elder care is one of them. And health care. Those types of things. So can cooperatives working with the support of government um, build a foundation that they can grow because they have a great track record of doing so. It doesn't have to be just cooperatives too. It has, there are many um, privately held businesses that are starting to address these needs. One of the um, private businesses that I've been working very closely with is a, um, a cheese plant in Wisconsin that is owned by uh, a private individual who to meet the needs of his community, 
when the community was lagging behind on those types of things, such as transportation and child care, uh, built those into his business plan. And he provides those as part of his employment community. And community is really his goal, that a person is not just reports to work for an eight-hour shift, but he is involved in making sure they have housing, transportation, health care, um, child care, all those things that build allegiance to that community and to that business. So I do think there are opportunities in a public-private partnership, whether it's private sector or cooperatives or privately held um, businesses. Some of our um, larger cooperatives have the resources and now are beginning to really see the importance of using technology and different forms of agricultural inputs and operations on a local scale through their network of local retail cooperatives to really make a difference on, um, you know, carbon and climate change at the farm level um, to advance, you know, regenerative agricultural practices. I think that is an example of you may have a cooperative that's one of the largest cooperatives or business entities in the world, and some of our members are, they're in the top 200 in, in the world, but through their network of farm supply retailers, it really gives them that boots on the ground presence, and then they can really make a difference in those individual communities. And the ones I'm talking to about right now are primarily starting to work in agricultural systems to capture carbon, um, to clean the water and, the, and, and promote soil health. But you got to start someplace, and I think that's a very important place to start, a wonderful place to start. But can we build out from there now? So we're the catch word in agriculture now, and it's on the front of every newspaper or magazine that I pick up about agriculture is soil health, clean water, soil health. It relates to um, cleaning up our water and capturing carbon. A healthy soil is a better net for that. Um, I think that's a great starting point, and it's something that the clock is really ticking on. If we do that, now can we build off of that and then have really effective communities based around that so that you're really capturing the things that I've been talking about, which is not only our natural resources, but our human resources, our society, and our culture. Those are really what the challenges are. I guess, in short, I would say, I'm encouraged by the energy that's flowing into this space. Um, it's probably overdue, better late than never. Um, but we have a lot of work ahead of us. When you look at the, the that what has happened to our rural communities over the last 50 years, um, we have a lot of work ahead of us. So there's a little bit of a fall into that, Dan. Uh, you know, I, I know from conversations that agencies like DATCAP and, and DNR, uh, for that matter, have metrics uh, built into their conversations and their programs, et cetera, around environmental outcomes and, let's say, soil health and clean water. It's not clear to me, and maybe I just look past it because of what I do, but I also imagine they have, like, economic growth indicators, job creation you know, sort of straight up economic stuff. Do they look at things like community vitality, like, uh, you know, the, um, 
I don't know better how how thriving might the community be because you can imagine a situation where there's lots of economic activity, but you know the community is sort of one dimensional or the community is sort of stuck in a old ways of thinking, let's say, and that sort of thing. Is this something that the state agencies think about as somebody who sat in DACAP for a while? I believe it is. It probably isn't to the level that it needs to be just because of lack of resources and time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think they have a good handle on not just through DATCAP, but through workforce development and DNR and other agencies in the state of that more holistic approach to a community and the impact of the policies in that area. Um, I think one of the things that we we ask our state agencies to do a tremendous amount of work on a very limited budget and limited resources. Um, and sometimes it's always playing catch up or responding to something that has previously occurred. Um, and, and then criticize them and beat them up uh, every, every chance we get to right, <laughs> in the meantime. Right. Yeah. You know, and you look at, you know, when you, when I first started working at DATCAP, especially as an administrator, you become a little overwhelmed at the list of things that DATCAP is responsible for doing every day. And one of the, you know, of course, I mentioned in my talk, you know, just permit and regulations to ensure, you know, that our fertilizer plants are safe, that when you buy a gallon of gas and you pay for it, you get the gallon of gas. You don't get a half a gallon, that you have uh, certain standards in our food stores and restaurants that keep us all safe. There's a tremendous just keeping the train running down the track. Um, I would like to see the opportunity for all of our state agencies not to just keep the train on the track. That was probably always going to be job one, but to see where that track might be leading us in the future and then to kind of steer us in that way. One of the things that I get asked a lot about um, when I'm out giving readings from ancestral or just giving talks is, um, you know, how did how did this happen? How did we get to the position we are in agriculture and our rural communities? And people shout out, you know, um, different different entities to blame. It can be government policy. It would be corporate farms or some type of a catchword, you know, big ag or something like that. But I think it's more that we simply didn't have a vision of where that track was running, and we just let it run. And, you know, as we were able to do more and more and change agriculture, uh, the impact on our rural communities, we never looked far enough ahead to see where that was going to take us. And if there would be a, a better way um, to get to where we want to go. So, you know, one of the controversial things in the dairy industry right now is, you know, the relationship between processors and producers. And processors need to, you know, be as efficient as they can. Um, so consolidation or specialization is is often seen as good for them. And then producers have constantly tried to get better, bigger and bigger to maximize on those efficiencies. So there is currently a 30,000 cow um, dairy farm being built in northern Arizona. Um, and that will be the largest that I'm aware of in one location. 
And people ask me, well, why are they doing that? And I think the answer really is because they can. We never could before. We couldn't handle that many cattle or cows in one area, milk them three times a day and everything that goes with that. We have the technology, the expertise to do that right now. So this is being built. The question we're not asking is, should it be built? And what are we willing to do to control it? Because it's going to have a tremendous impact on the soil and the water and the environment of that area. So that's a real live example of what is happening right now. I haven't heard those questions being asked about it or those challenges being brought to it no more than they ever were in the past as agriculture changed all these ways. So I think not having a vision of where we are going in the future and then having a discussion and making those hard decisions about the type of food system, the type of relationship between consumer, producer, and processor that we want to have, um, how we want to make sure that our rural communities stay vibrant and part of the process, uh, are inclusive, are forward-looking, um, but maintaining their heritage and their essence in that way um, is not a conversation that our state agencies have ever really had the ability to participate in. I didn't feel when I was at DATCAP I had the ability to, you know, tip the scale one way or another in those types of things, Randy. Yeah, thanks. Maybe we can shift gears uh, a little bit here, and I can ask Kristen Biederman from uh, Minnesota to um, ask her a question. Kristen, are you there? Can you hear me? Yep, loud and clear. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So, yeah, like uh, Randy said, I'm from Minnesota, and I work for a state agency um, that partners with local soil and water conservation districts and producers um, to restore and protect water resources in rural southeast Minnesota, so right on the border of Wisconsin. Um, and I actually worked for a short period of time for an FSA office. So, um, I have worked with loans and different things with agricultural producers. Um, I, I'd be interested to discuss, um, you know, things that we can do and how best we can work with farmers, um, to improve both their farms and the natural resources. Um, you know, what's a good first step and what would be most impactful for them and us mutually. Thank you. And I think you you mentioned um, the power and the grassroots energy that comes from the local watersheds. And I do think what we are talking about really has to start at the farm level, the ground level, at the at the local watershed, um, driven by farmer engagement. I think participation in um, what Jeffrey mentioned before, those local and regional boards, whether it's your town board, your co-op board, your school board, or whatever, um, to put your energies at the ground level, to have these discussions, to drive public policy from the ground up instead of the way that it is usually driven from the top down is very, is very, very important. And I think as we look at um, where we're headed here in the next, say, ten, five to ten years, I think it's really a critical time on many, many different scales. Uh, obviously, we're on a ticking clock with climate change, but be, beyond that, I think 
Um, President Biden just said that today at the United Nations about the clicking to, uh, clock with climate change. But let's look at some other things. So if, and I know I keep going back to this, but I think it's it's such an important thing to be looking ahead, as, as Randy pointed out before. If we are going to lose a third of the dairy farms in Wisconsin in the next five years, um, that may be inevitable because of the aging of those farmers and everything that I talked about. Okay, so what is the alternative for that land and for those farms and for those communities? It can't just be more corn and soybeans. If it's more corn and soybeans, then we're going to become Iowa. I think we need to start looking now at local and regional ag systems that work with the local watershed and building some type of an alternative um, crop market uh, way of those farms staying in the family without just being rented out to another farmer for more corn and soybean production, which just escalates soil and water loss and depreciates the um, soil or the corn and soybean markets. Can we find that those new opportunities? I think that's the number one challenge as we move forward, because that's that's there's a lot of change coming on in agriculture. So one of the co-op managers that I talked with last spring um, was retiring after 30 years in farm supply cooperatives. And he said, take a really good look at agriculture today because in five years you won't recognize it. And I think he's right. But what I don't know is what is it that we're not going to recognize? And there are enough, is there enough time and there are enough people working to want to try to steer it to a vision that we can all be engaged with moving forward? And I'm not sure what that, what, really what that picture is right now. Um, but we don't have much time to figure it out. Cause that's a lot of farms that are going to lose their livestock production. Um, and they need to pivot to something else. Finding that thing to pivot to that can do all the things we've been talking about on this webinar, which is everything from saving our natural resources to saving our rural populations. Um, that's a pretty tall order but something that we need to be working on. And I think it's only will be successful being driven from the ground level, small communities up. Thanks for that, Dan. We're really ringing you out here this afternoon. Appreciate it. We have a couple more questions, if that's okay. I'm going to ask uh, Michel Watio if he would uh, frame his question from the chat. Uh, yeah, th thank you. Um, Thank you for this wonderful reflections and on the industry in, in Wisconsin. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm in Belgium and was very lucky to work with dairy farmers in many parts of the world. And um, one of the things that is, is um, you know, striking to me is this balance between this hard work, which is part of the culture, that can contribute to make the farm a success, um, you know, if combined with the ability to change versus the hard work that's tied with the tradition and in a way contribute to the breaking of the farm in the long term. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is in your in your, you know, 
long time experience here. What are really the fundamental drivers that makes farmers, you know, to, 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 to being able to change or, or not? You know, what, what makes it that some people are driven to change and others are stuck where they are? That's such a wonderful question. Thank you for that, because I think it really goes right to the heart of what I've been trying to talk to you about today. I think it it is kind of a catch-22 that, um, you know, I'll, I'll refer back to one of the things I said very early in this conversation. Remember, I said that I had been a confinement large dairyman for 20 years and then pivoted to rotational grazing. In the picture at the top of my slide, that's the that's my herd in Illinois um, grazing. Um, and I said that when I went back to rotational grazing, it returned me and reminded me of why I wanted to be a farmer in the first place, why I went back to the farm. Why did it take me 20 years to figure that out? I think a lot of the improvements that we have made, advances that we have made, if I may use those two words, um, in agriculture, have served to um, re- to remove the farm from the farmer. If we look at a lot of, um, well, just the example of the farmer watching the Netflix series while he was planting his corn. Um, technology has kind of gotten in the way. My first 20 years that I farmed, I was very uh, committed to um, growing acres, growing cow numbers, growing gross income, and those types of things. So I got to the point where I felt I had to make a change. And going to rotational grazing reversed a lot of those things and connected me again to the land, uh, increased net income and reminded me of all the joys that farming had always brought to me as a child and and as a farmer. Um, I think that's the real challenge for a lot of farmers today. And I will say that I have talked to a lot of farmers today still farming full time that say that they do not find it as enjoyable as it once was. I think it is the level of risk the level of stress, the size of the operations to stay in farming have really um, severed those ties of why you became a farmer connected to your farm in the first place. Um, when I made my decision to leave farming, and every farmer has to make his own personal decision, his or her personal decision on that, um, when I looked at what it would take for me to stay in farming, um, I can tell you I was not interested in doing that. Um, if, if I couldn't make it as a rotational grazing farmer and couldn't figure out a way to extend the life of the farm through that, I was not interested in doing it. I wanted to get into a second career. The I think there are a lot of farmers facing those same questions today, um, how they can stay connected to their land, their ancestry, their communities, um, while all this change is pulling them further down the line. I think that's a, that's a very difficult, um, situation to be in. And I think, I think that the 
Um, physical and mental toll, you know, we do, there are a lot of resources being applied in the state to the mental health for farmers right now. Um, thankfully, because I think it is a very stressful situation a lot of these farmers are finding themselves in. Um, but the physical toll is, is ex- extremely, extremely difficult. Um, and something that we just have to deal with over time. Um, I think it is the kind of caught in the epigraph where it's, you know, the um, one of the blessings of your life and one of the curses of your life um, being kind of caught in that central area. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to have I'm going to ask Thelma Heidelbaker, who happens to be one of our future presenters uh, in this uh, dialogue to uh, maybe ask a question and then we'll wrap it up after that. Thelma, are you there? I am here. Um, hi, Dan. Thank you so much for this this wonderful presentation today. So I guess um, I I guess what I wanted to kind of present was I I came back to my family's farm kind of mid-career, mid-life, not early on. Um, and if my parents hadn't made some of those big changes to the farm um, prior to us coming, I probably would not have come back. I would not have come back. Um, so right. it's an organic grass-based dairy farm now. And, you know, and I, I really appreciate that they made those changes so that I didn't have to do it because that's what I believe is kind of the future for kind of the future, kind of the way that can really work works for our lives in a well-balanced way with little kids and family and things like that as well. And I guess my question for you then is kind of what are those changes, thinking about more on a farm level of, you know, what might draw people back like myself to the farm, somebody who's like left or not sure why, why would you want to come back? Like Mm -hmm. what would those things that makes life worthwhile, rural prosperity, bigger things? I just, from your perspectives of what you've seen, I'd just love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Well, thank you. That's really a great question. Congratulations on, on your success back on the farm. Um, I don't want to paint the picture that the red barn agriculture that we all loved in Wisconsin was the end all and be all because most farmers did not enjoy milking in a stanchion barn in, uh, on a day when it was 95 in the shade or uh, in a day when the water pipes were freezing. Um, it was a difficult a difficult um, system. Um, I think doing what your family has done, which is to figure out a way to um, have a certain quality of life, to handle the physical and the emotional stress of agriculture. Um, I don't know if I did that good of a job of that. I mean, I think I was mostly underwater physically and emotionally for much of the time that I was farming. And I really admire those who can step back and look at the farm and say, let's build a system here and let's not have a target of how many cows. It's kind of back to those three questions that the farmer wanted to ask. Let's build a system here that protects the land and the water, um, allows the family to stay on the farm and returns to the greater community. Those are really the three questions that I think if you can answer on your farm, uh, if they can be, you know, the, the three questions you put up on the wall that you look at every day, um, that is totally admirable. And because I think a lot of farmers, if they put up the three questions on the wall or a couple questions on the wall over the last 40 years, 
it had to be, you know, how can I get bigger? How can I transition, you know, from a stanchion to a parlor to a freestyle setup and, and just kind of get on that treadmill that just keeps going up? What I admire about people like you and your family and others who have done that is to look at the greater picture and to build a a unit of production that returns on all those levels to your life and isn't just a numbers game. That's where we always have gotten into the trouble of how we can get the numbers game. Um, so as our numbers of cows and our numbers of acres that we could handle continue to go up, we just constantly undercut the farmers. So we had fewer and fewer farmers, and now we're heading towards 5,000. I see farms like yours and opportunities like you've had to come back is probably the most um, enlightening and um, encouraging sign that I see in agriculture today. So I thank you for that. Well, thank you, Dan. And as I mentioned, Thelma is going to join us November 16th. I put in the chat there our future um, uh, um, events for the the four-part series this fall. So you can uh, add those to your calendar. I want to thank Dan for such a wonderful set of reflections on uh, all of these roles that he's played. The only person I can think of who's played all these different roles is our own Laura Payne, who's been in uh, agencies at the state level and uh, helping with cooperatives and uh, farming yourself and, and the poetry. It all speaks to exactly what we're trying to work on here in Grassland 2.0 is how to weave together all these dimensions of our society to, to make positive change and Thank you so much for uh, sharing with us today, Dan, and please join me in uh, thanking Dan as, as much as we can here over Zoom. And so we'll see you all next time. Thank you, everyone. A big thanks to Dan Smith for presenting in the Grassland 2.0 Digital Dialogue Series. Dan is a previous administrator for the Division of Agricultural Development at the Wisconsin Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protection, and author of Ancestral, a poetry collection drawing from his 30 years as a dairy farmer in northwestern Illinois. Next month, we'll hear Dr. Stefan von Vliet discuss the linkages between livestock health and human health. Until then, thanks for listening to GrassCast, the Grassland 2.0 podcast. Grassland 2.0 believes that caring for the land means caring for ourselves and that perennial farming systems are our best option for doing so. If you want to learn more about Grassland 2.0 and get involved, you can visit our website, grasslandag.org.